So the last story I shared in uh, flexibility meets reliability actually had to do with, um, you know, how do you handle when things, when, you know, the, the traditional protocol doesn't always work, meaning you have planned a way in which you're going to run your interview. And for whatever reason, the participant in front of you um, either, you know, takes ownership and, and does it differently than whatever you had scripted. Uh, so it kind of veers you a little bit off course from that protocol you had established, or maybe even in the design of it initially, you know that that population, there's a huge variance, there's something there that might or might not respond well to, you know, a, a very specific way of running an interview, whatever that way might be. As I was mentioning in that story, I think the one of the ways we saw this come uh, in, into COVID is when you're running an interview with a participant and all of a, of a sudden something's happening, right? And in that particular story, the person I was interviewing started, literally took his computer with him and uh, or I think it was an iPad and he started going around the house and starting showing me, you know, the places that he had been describing and, and showing me very, um, you know, it was really nice. He was sharing me really details like the stool and how high it is and those kind of things. And it made it very palpable, but also it gave me a real sense of what the environment is like, how things are. And you might have seen that too, for example, when uh, parents got interrupted by kids in the middle of the interview. And we might have thought that this was, you know, uh, an, a negative or minus because it's detracting from that script maybe that you've got. Um, but in a way, it was much richer because it introduced a lot of real life into what was happening. It gave me insights into, um, you know, more context uh, to the interview than just maybe the plain questions that we might have had. And in general, it demanded a, a sort of flexibility that I thought was quite interesting, um, you know, to still get reliability, despite being able to accommodate these new information flows, essentially, that were coming in. The solution I ended up uh, advocating for, I guess, um, and adopting at the time, I was actually inspired from a research I had run in university. I had started running in university and then unfortunately got interrupted by COVID. Um, but I still, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what I had learned in, in planning for that because I think it it was eye-opening. And, and, you know, in design, we often say if you design for the extremes, you end up catering for the the, the mainstream too. So, it, you know, that principle of universal design um, I, I think I learned a lot just through the reflection, right, preparing that IRB for, for that project. So the way you, you go around that problem before I, I launch into this particular, um, the, the, the details of this, is you decouple the way that you get the input from the output. And what I mean by that is you can collect a story in various ways as long as your coding is consistent and can accommodate all of the ways you've captured the story then you're okay and that's that's the main um the main point I wanted to do and when I stated like that right when I kind of thought about that I thought well how obvious right but it's not how we traditionally do it traditionally we do a protocol in a very detailed way from a to z where this is how we're capturing it this is how we're um you know coding it and for, I guess, consistency and lack of bias and to make sure it's really all comparable, we tend to stick to really capturing in the same way. But I think the variance across the population might actually make it necessary, as is in, in the case I'm about to share, to find these alternate ways while still being rigorous in how you're going to analyze them. This, by the way, I think is most useful when you're looking at thematic coding, right? If you're going to 
code things with themes that makes a lot more sense um because regardless you know if it's a drawing or if it's a a, a story or if it's contextual inquiry you could still find themes um everywhere and then you have to look out for things like frequency that will no longer be a great measure because obviously uh you get frequency in perhaps um you know, a discussion you might not getting as much in some kind of, um, you know, fo di photo diary or, or um, picture that people draw and comment on. So the, the exact measurements might change, but, you know, fundamentally, you could still uh, get the, the, the gist of it uh, in terms of what are the themes that are being touched on, regardless of the medium in which they were communicated. So let's jump into a storytelling mode just to tell you a little bit about the research I was doing at the time and kind of illustrate how this came about in, in case, you know, you want a good story. Um, I was looking at an audience of young people with what we call level one ASD. So um, this was for young people with autism. And I had been very intrigued. Um, and this was also very hard for me because I'm not extremely familiar and was not at the time um, with autism and how it, it manifests i guess right and the recruitment phase which is something you have to plan in for the irb is um is actually something you need to think about more than most researches right and in most of the researches the inclusion criteria and the, the kind of protocol and how you're going to go about um screening people and so on is fairly straightforward fairly standard but uh you quickly find out that with um people who live with autism there's um, you know, diff completely different ways of processing information. Some of them are very visual. Some of them have, um, you know, kind of text-based, like they, they can't read very well the visuals, but they're really good with lists and things like that. Um, there's different, you know, modes of, of expressions, different levels of autonomy and of also verbal um, abilities. So, it's a really wide range and it's really, really hard when you're thinking of designing a study for a group that has this much variance. To start with, I have to say the one of the things you have to consider, of course, is uh, and the way you can kind of control, quote unquote, for that is you, you restrict it. You say, OK, we're going to go for people who maybe are able to um, share thoughts verbally because that's, you know, a prerequisite for, for example, an interview. Um, you know, people who have enough autonomy to, to travel, because in this case, we were looking at the um, mental representation in mapping environments, basically, so wayfinding for, for people with autism. So in order to test that, you have, you need people who actually do, <laughs> um, do go about the world and, and uh, try to figure out different paths. So all of these things are kind of, um, things you, you want to think about, but you, you still there's still a variance even within that that um, group. And even within that, you still want to be welcoming and, and kind of inclusive. So you need to think differently about this recruitment question. So a little bit of a background of, of how I was framing that question at the time. Um, when you're looking at maps, for example, Google Maps and so on, they're made for, um, you know, people who are looking pretty much to optimize their route based on the criteria of distance. That's often what it is, right? Or time, distance or time. Um, and I was thinking, okay, but when you're looking at someone 
who experiences the world differently, like someone who has autism, maybe they have different representations uh, mentally and different criteria actually for what they want to optimize for. Um, maybe they have certain senses like olfactory or light that um, is more significant for them. So maybe they um, might want to take a route where these things are easier on their senses or more pleasant. Maybe there's things like landmarks of personal significance. If, uh, you know, depending, and, and I don't know, this is all a hypothesis, but um, I guess even you and me, when we do travel, you know, if we're going somewhere in our neighborhood, it's it's always easier if we just say, well, you know, at the gas station, you turn right and then you go two blocks and you see the, the little diner from Annette and you go left. And that might be how you navigate the world and you might not even know the names of the streets. And yet all of the wayfinding systems are currently, which makes sense for, for most use cases, but they're currently geared towards those those kind of um, streets, right? <laughs> uh, street names and so on. So that is interesting. And the other thing is um, looking at existing maps also, like bicycle uh, routes, underground maps, they, they have these points where they do overlap you know physically in our world but what's really interesting is very often um graphically the graphic representation may or may not be kind of uniform or in the same style so if you're thinking <clears throat> of a model there's like you know <laughs> this is the point of the research we don't know what the best representation is and it might actually be personalized right it might be um a small parenthesis that a database would have different ways of expressing something and the interface would be uh determined by the user preference you know so um if, if you can kind of systemize how you're you're identifying all of that labeling it in, in the background right but um at, at the high level what's really interesting is you know let's say you're going um with by foot and then you decide to take the metro and then for the last, last little um stretch you need to rent a bike or like grab a bike from one of those um I'm not sure what those, those are called, but this place where they have lots of bikes next to the metro, right? Um, the, the shared rides system of bikes. Um, and then maybe walk a little bit more. Um, it's interesting to think about, okay, well, how would that be represented visually, right? Because to someone who's looking at the map from, you know, that respective system, it's it's different, right? Like the metro map is different from walking, which is a city map. These are all different formats. But if you think about it from a quote unquote user's perspective to the individual, if depending on what the kind of mental representations they have in their head, these could become one thing, right? Like if, if you're thinking of it as a line with dots and they're colored differently or something right because you're thinking abstractly about it then whether it's metro or foot kind of looks the same right um or you might have considerations like that this this idea is not very um fledged out because it would be something much later into the process in terms of design decisions but it's interesting to to wonder about okay does it make a difference the fact that there's different transportation modes should they be represented in the same way on a map or differently how do people naturally think about it, right? Or if they draw it for you, how would they represent those different shifts between those modes of transportations? And does it matter, right? So concretely, uh, some of the hypothesis in, in this research was that the um, 
the, the people with autism may maybe emphasize avoidance strategies as part of their route planning. Uh, for instance, they might seek routes with less noise, less lighting, less pedestrian traffic, that sort of thing. Um, and the selected routes may therefore represent actually longer routes or commutes compared to what a traditional system might recommend. Um, but it's emphasizing other desirable characteristics of routes for young people with autism. And maybe they just have different criteria or different needs that make these routes optimal for them. So I was really aiming at a participatory inclusive research, right? And one, there's a couple of rationales and a couple of um, ways that I was thinking about that recruitment stage. And the first one has to do with the design of protocols that really include the audience rather than the proxies. Um, what we do see when we do some uh, research around topics for young, young people with disabilities is that traditionally they've been centered around the caregiver or experts that act as proxies, um, presumably because the it's very difficult to collect first-person data, um, as you will get a sense of by, by the time of this episode. And so traditional methods kind of um, create a construct that excludes the individuals which are being studied, which is a little bit um, not bizarre because we understand why that's done, but it is certainly suboptimal, right? Um, and the lack of established protocols for that participatory research um, with specifically young people with disabilities requires a little bit of ingenuity, I think, for people who are trying to to create new research designs. And the a way that we interpret the data is also um, maybe requires a little bit more of, of thinking around that to be inclusive so that it could accommodate like reactions or interactions that are maybe differing from what we would expect in a normal interview. Okay, and the second uh, big aspect of, of this question for me is also that another obstacle that we know already uh, from previous research um, is linked to the way that we, you know, the the we recruit participants. So individuals with autism have more difficulty in expressing ideas or sustaining what we call person-to-person -person contact. So like um, with the eyes, with the, the the discussion and so on, just the presence and the stimulation. And um, we, it's it's what we call hypothesized in the field that it diminishes the willingness to actually partake in some kind of uh, traditional interview settings, which means it's harder to recruit them, right? Because if the activity itself of interview, which to you know, most people seems like a very benign activity, right? It's just having a chat. If that in itself represents a an obstacle or something that's stressful, an experience that's not really desirable um, for people, it's it's harder to recruit them in the first place, right? So we've got to think differently about how we're going to structure the this interview activity or this research to actually be able to um, accommodate and recruit and make it more appealing to people who do want to help the research. So a couple of design principles that I was looking into was, first of all, in the design right of the research, is to increase accessibility by reducing the cognitive load. And this has already been done. It's it's not um, novel per se, but basically what uh, previous studies have done was sometimes they involve accompaniment, which um, can help you know, put, put the person at ease and maybe be more natural because that may be how they travel usually. Uh, some relied on self-led navigation. That's also a, a, 
viable form. Uh, some were using technology like mobile phones or GoPro cameras, and others relied on really low-tech tools such as paper and cards with images to sort. There were also different degrees to which the protocols had been enforced. Um, so, for example, they could uh, allow for optional use of navigation aids, um, like maps in one of the studies. Uh, others were requiring the use of a handheld tool in, um, that was electronic in another um, study, but they basically allowed for a little bit more help or a little bit more support um, if whatever was planned initially in the protocol didn't really work for the person. So this is sometimes perceived a, a little bit as a trade-off um, for obtaining the, the participation consent and for being more sensitive to the special needs, um, you know, because you're kind of going away from just the main protocol that you're used to. But I, I think it's just being more flexible, more understanding, and um, it actually might increase the quality of their data if, if you're making it accessible for the people that are you know, trying to help and, and participate in, in the study. Um, one thing that did uh, seem to work pretty well also was what they called retrospective thinking aloud protocols. Um, so in, this, in, in the sense that the, traditionally we do in the moment thinking aloud protocols, but this was giving the chance um, for people to kind of do it in a lower stress environment when stuff had already happened to kind of go back and describe a process that seemed to also alleviate a little bit of um, that that stress experience for the participants. So there's a lot of different ways when I did the research um, that people could make mental representations of space. Um, and I won't go through like a, a list now because that would be quite long, but there's like concrete representations, there's abstract representations, um, and they exist in, in different modalities using different senses. So the point was I quickly realized that kind of imposing one way versus another would really restrict things because you don't know in advance, and especially um, in, in this particular study where that is a little bit the point is to understand the maybe mental representations of, of people you may not want to be very restrictive in how you approach this. So in the end, I uh, was looking into settling in on three dimensions that I wanted to code because this is what it really comes to. Um, no matter how they kind of give you the input, how what are ways that you could actually go and code um, these things? One of them had to do with the mode of navigation. So just uh, understanding of all the, the different modalities that I had identified with, with those two categories I just mentioned, what are the ones that emerge um, naturally, right, as strategies for people? The second one was a representation of preferred navigation mode. So is it, uh, like, how do they prefer the information to be displayed? Is it photography? Is it iconography, hand-drawn um, images, text, audio, all those kinds of, of possible displays? And the third one had to do with process and rationale. So Understanding whether the strategy is actually avoidance-based, which is the hypothesis here, so avoiding noise, etc., or is it optimization-based, for example, getting to a de destination through the fastest route. So in order to be coherent, this this is one of the cases where um, I preferred to, to go towards closed cl uh, coding instead of open coding, uh, just because there are a lot of constructs and a lot of um, things, ways to sort. And this has to become a little bit more rigorous, specifically because the um, input is so open-ended. I needed a, a more robust way of classifying things when they do get to that um, analysis stage. And the way to do that is to have a, a better um, established framework that's really rooted in research that's been done previously and that we know is reliable. 
So all of this to say, these are, uh, this was just an illustration and these are basically broad concepts, but it's just to bring on to the table. You know, I think we are trained very often to, to be um, very rigorous and do things in a certain way. And I think that's great. But I think this question of flexibility, especially when it comes to being inclusive, um, becomes really important. And it's, it's, I think, an interesting question. And there might be other ways also that um, the, the people in the field have, have perhaps found to address this. But that's something I, I think also about. How do we remain flexible while still being reliable? Because at the core of it, um, you're trying to compare different things together and you do need kind of that common denominator, that common way of approaching things. I think coding is the the way in which you do that, right? Consistent coding. Um, but I, I do wonder about all the ways we can change our protocols to be able to be more welcoming um, for, for people who might be underrepresented, in, um, essentially, in our research.